0: Can you pray with me again? Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we do pray now that as we look into your Word, that by your Spirit you might teach us, that you might show us what it is that we need to see, and that by your Spirit you might speak to us through the Scriptures, that we might hear and listen and and obey your Word. We pray all this for your glory, for our good, in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, been with us in the past few weeks, we have been going through a new sermon series in the book of Exodus. We're calling it You Shall Know I Am. And that's because that is essentially the theme of the book. Exodus is ultimately about God revealing himself To his people. I know it is about certain characters that we're very familiar with Moses, Pharaoh, the Israelites, their escape from Egypt but I will contend that ultimately this book is about God. It's about God revealing his name, his character, his glory. And we've been seeing God uh, just in the first two books of the Bible revealing himself uh, right from the start in the book of Genesis we learn that God is the creator and covenant maker. That means he's the one who made all the peoples of the world, and he chose and blessed one particular people that they might therefore be a blessing to all the rest. And he secured that blessing for that people by means of a covenant, by means of a promise that he made to their forefathers. That's Genesis, and now in Exodus this covenantal God reveals his name as the great I Am. And he proves his power, and he demonstrates his glory over all of his rivals. This book of Exodus is all about God showing his glory. We see over and over again throughout this book, God saying in similar words that he is going to you know, perform this sign, or he's going to send that plague, so that you, and whether he's talking here to the Israelites, or maybe he might be talking to the Egyptians, the whole point is so that you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And so the whole point that we're trying to argue about the book of Exodus is that it's about getting God's identity right, to really know him as he has revealed himself. Otherwise, if you fail to do so, you might be confused, you might be frustrated when you experience some false expectations of God. You know, I know in my life there have been times when a mistaken identity led me to form some false expectations of other people. There was this one time I remember standing in a retail store, wondering why this sales associate is so neglectful and such a poor worker. She's not paying any attention to me as I'm standing there, obviously, with clothes draped over my arm, waiting for her to open up a dressing room for me. Turns out she's just a customer, like me, who happens to dress like all the other hipster workers in that store. It's hard for me to get it, get it straight. That was my bad, definitely. I made assumptions about this person. I was in my head thinking all of these bad thoughts about how she doesn't know how to do her job. I thought I knew who she was, which frustrated me when her actions did not match my assumptions. Now, I know my example is trivial compared to the case of mistaken identity that the Israelites had. But, of course, the the principle is still the same. So for the Israelites, they were introduced to Yahweh, the Lord, the great I Am. And they were informed by Moses and Aaron that this is the God of your forefathers and he has made a promise to you today. He is going to deliver you from slavery. And so they, therefore, formed certain assumptions about God and they had certain expectations for how he would act. So in in chapter 4, like we looked last week, God promised to Moses that I'm going to be with you I'm going to be with your mouth I am going to give you the very words that you ought to say to Pharaoh and so you can understand why Moses and Aaron and the Israelites they were all expecting that now that God has come he's chosen Moses he's given him Aaron he's given him words to say we're going to have success. There's going to be immediate success here. Moses must have figured that he and his brother just have to walk up to Pharaoh, deliver the message from the Lord to let my people go, and it would be over. Exodus complete, book over. But the exact opposite happens. Pharaoh is annoyed by this request. He assumes it must be That the Israelites are lazy, they are idle, that's why they have enough time to dream up this silly idea of leaving and going to hold a feast to their Lord. And so he doubles down on oppressing them. And of course, that certainly did not fit Moses' expectations. Look with me at what he says to the Lord at the end of the chapter. Look in verses 22 to 23, and, and you can get a hint at what Moses imagined would happen once he spoke up to Pharaoh. It says in verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why, why have you done evil to this people? Why, why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Can you detect the underlying assumption? Moses assumed that having God's presence, having God's promise on your side, guarantees you immediate results. Why haven't you delivered already, Lord? He is baffled by his experience of failure. Earlier in the chapter, we see Pharaoh asking a very important question Who is the Lord? he at least acknowledged his ignorance of who is the Lord. I think Moses' problem is that he presumes to actually know the Lord. He presumes to know exactly how the Lord operates, but there is, as he shall see, more to God than he expected. And church, I I believe the same could be said of us. I believe we could be in danger of making the same assumptions and putting false expectations on God. Maybe maybe some of you have been confused. Maybe you've been frustrated with the Lord lately because His actions have not matched your assumptions. You're trying to serve Him. You're trying to do His will. You're trying to please Him. And so you expect there to be at least some progress, some fruitfulness, some success, but instead you've been faced lately with opposition, Hardship and failure. And so I, I think it'll benefit you to ask the same question. Who is the Lord? As revealed to us in Scripture, who is He? In Exodus chapter 5, what do we learn about Him? Maybe there's more to Him than we expected. And in particular, what I'd like to talk about this morning is the role that failure plays within the plans of this Lord. I want to talk about failure. Let's look at three things about the way God uses failure in his plans. If you want to pull out the outline in your bulletin, you'll see those three um, points that we're going to be covering. First, let's talk about our experience, about how our experience of failure is integral to God's plans. Second, how our reaction to failure is revealing of our hearts. And third, how our powerless in failure is pointing to God's sovereign grace. Okay, so that's, that's a roadmap. Let me uh, begin by considering how the experience of failure is integral to God's plans. Let's uh, first review what happened after Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh and told him that the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go. So look with me in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now what's going on here? Because as we already saw, in chapter 4, God He gives promises. He gives assurances to Moses. Because remember, Moses is filled with self-doubt. He is lacking in confidence. And the Lord tells him, don't worry, Moses. I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. And I will teach you what to say. Don't worry, Moses. I am the great I am. Here are these signs that you can perform. And, And they all demonstrate that there is no one more powerful than I go, therefore, and be my mouth to Pharaoh. And so, it's a reasonable expectation that when you get into chapter 5, you would assume that Pharaoh would hear God's word coming through Moses' mouth and that he would let the people go. So, what happened? Was God not with his mouth? He said exactly what God told him to say. So, Why didn't it work? God said that he's going to give him words. Moses faithfully communicates those words. Why did he fail? What's going on? But of course, do you see here that this question I'm asking assumes. That failure simply could not have been a part of God's plan. It assumes that if you follow his word, it assumes if you obey his commands, then all of his promises will be actualized for you right then and there. But what if, what if the experience of failure, what if having to patiently wait on the Lord to fulfill his promises in his timing, what if that is actually an integral part of his good plans. Moses and the Israelites, they thought that they knew the Lord. But in some ways, they were as clueless as Pharaoh. They assumed that having the presence and promises of God on your side guarantees success, immediate success. And when it didn't pan out for them, when God's actions did not match their assumptions, they grew confused, they grew frustrated, they turned on each other. In verse 21, they take it out on Moses and Aaron. And in verses 22 to 23, as we already read, Moses, he takes it out on the Lord. But if you, if you read the Bible, starting from the very beginning, you are already introduced to a God who incorporates failure, who incorporates waiting within his plans for his people. This is nothing new here. I mean, just think with me of of the first forefather, of Abraham. Think about his experiences. You know, from the day that the Lord told him that I will be your God and you will be the father of many nations, do you realize that 10 years went by with nothing to show for? For 120 consecutive months, Abraham and Sarah had to endure the cyclical experience of infertility. Every month, ascending in hopefulness, only to plummet into disappointment and despair once again. After 10 years of that, they were fed up. And so they turned to Hagar. They turned to Sarah's handmaiden, hoping that if they gave her to Abraham, then maybe she would bear that child of promise. They tried to take matters into their own hands. It would actually take another 15 years. So that's 25 years in total of experiencing failure on a monthly basis before God opened Sarah's womb and fulfilled his promise to give them Isaac, that child of promise. And so those 25 years, those 300 consecutive months, friends, they were not punishment for failure to believe or to obey. No, those painful experiences of failure were actually integral aspects of God's plan for Abraham and Sarah. And if you actually think about it, The actualization of God's promises to them can appear to make the situation even worse before it gets better. Because once Abraham finally had Isaac in his arms, the next thing you know, he's being asked to sacrifice his son. And so what we see is that God tends to challenge us with experiences of difficulty before he gives us the victory. He often tests us. Will we trust him even as the situation seems to get worse before it gets any better? That seems to be the case here for Israel, here in Exodus 5, because God's promises are starting to be actualized. His chosen man, his promised prophet, is here with a word from the Lord on his lips. But with the actualization of the promise, the situation seems to be getting worse. You read on in the chapter Pharaoh makes it even harder on the Israelites by no longer supplying them straw in order to make their bricks but at the same time he still requires them to produce the same amount of bricks as before and he has them beaten when they fail to produce The point is the point is that even when it seems like God's promises are taking shape the situation can get worse before it starts to get better but the apparent failure is not in a, in, in, it is not an intrusion to God's plans. The whole point is that it's an integral part of His plans. I want to stress this point for you for those of you who right now are experiencing failure who are experiencing disappointment as you're trying to follow Jesus, and you're trying to serve him, maybe in your studies or in your work, within your family, just within your life, you want to please him. Well, notice how God is, he's with Moses. Notice how God is with his mouth. Notice how God is keeping every single promise that he made. And notice how yet failure is still present. Disappointment and difficulties are still a reality. And so just seeing what Moses is going through, I think, should give you so much comfort to know that failure in itself is not an indication of your disobedience or of God's displeasure. Now, of course, you should always be evaluating your actions, You should always be testing your attitude in case you are in disobedience. But the point here is that the experience of failure itself could very well be an integral part of God's plan for you. And the question really is, how are you going to react to it? How are you going to respond? This leads to our second point. Let's consider how our reaction to failure is very revealing of our hearts. The point here is that one of the reasons why failure is an integral part of God's plans is because He wants to expose and to reveal things about us to us. And oftentimes, you don't really know what's in your heart until life gives you a jolt, until you are shaken by some crisis, by some pain, by some experience of failure. C.S. Lewis tries to make this very point in his book, Mere Christianity. He says that the best evidence for what sort of person you are is to see how you react when you are surprised and taken off guard by some crisis of failure. He writes this, Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on the disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar of my soul. And so what he's trying to say here is that if you're always accustomed to getting your way, to experiencing success and achieving your goals, then you're kind of like the man who always goes into the cellar, shouting and announcing your presence, giving the rats plenty of time to hide themselves. Sometimes, sometimes for the good of your own soul, you need to experience failure. And then, like the man who suddenly falls into the cellar, you can finally see the rats that have always been there. And friends, I think that's one reason why God wills for you to experience failure. How you react is going to reveal how many rats are in your cellar, how many sinful inclinations still need to be rooted out of your heart. So do you see what I'm saying here? failure can actually be God's grace to you. Just consider the Israelites. You you see, the, the central question for them in the book of Exodus that's been presented is the question of, whom will you serve? God or Pharaoh? The king of Egypt Or the great I am, whom will you serve? And as we saw last week at the end of chapter 4, after hearing the good news of God's presence and God's promise, it says that the Israelites bowed down and they worship the Lord. But now, at the first sign of trouble, at the first taste of failure, they go back to who? They go back to Pharaoh. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Then the foremen of the people of Israel came, and they cried to Pharaoh. I mean, if you remember earlier in the book, they were crying out to the Lord, but now they cry to Pharaoh? And and listen to what they say to him. Why do you treat your servants like this? Your servants. Two more times. In the next verse, verse 16, they refer to themselves as servants of Pharaoh. You see, deep down, that's how they still see themselves. They, they earlier bowed and they worshiped Yahweh. They called themselves his servants. But at the first taste of failure and hardship, they ran back to their master. They cried out to Pharaoh. And that reveals something. You can see the rats in their cellar. You can see what's still in their hearts that needs to be rooted out. There is some idolatry there. They are turning to their true master in this case, which is still Pharaoh. Friends, this is what's happening for them. They need to see this about themselves, and this is what I'm arguing is one of the reasons why we need to go through failure to see things in our hearts that we may be blind to right now. I've experienced this firsthand. When my wife and I, like Abraham and Sarah, experienced year, years of infertility, it was extremely revealing. It exposed the rats in my cellar. And the way I reacted towards God, the way I was so frustrated and so angry at Him, it revealed so much to me. I finally saw the layers of legalism that were always there in my soul. Because apparently I was under the impression that my obedience to God's call, my, my willingness to serve him with my vocation, to be a pastor, that that should have resulted in immediate success. That should have resulted in an answered prayer. Like why would he withhold children from a couple that only wants to raise children to love and serve the Lord? But do you see, that's legalism thinking. That's assuming that my obedience, my willingness, my performance can somehow earn me a blessing, earn me the right to have my prayers answered. My experience of failure didn't make me a legalist, but it did prevent my legalism from being able to hide in the cellar anymore. I finally understood the depths of my sinfulness. I finally saw the legalistic tendencies that I have within me that still need to be repented of. And the whole point is that it took an an experience of profound failure to get me to that point. And maybe that's what God's doing in your life. Maybe that's the lesson he's trying to teach you right now. Whatever deep disappointments that you're going through, Whatever failures you're facing, please do not conclude that God's presence has abandoned you or that his promises have failed you. You should conclude instead that God's providence is trying to teach you something. Something in you, showing you something in you that you did not see before. And so that's why I would say failure The experience of failure is a mercy. It's a severe mercy, but it's a mercy to you. It's intended for your good, the good of your soul. So we've considered how God's plans for us often include the experience of failure and how one reason is to help us to see what's truly in our hearts. Well, friends, there is another reason why he lets us fail, and this is our third point our experience of failure exposes our powerlessness, and that points us to the mighty power of God's sovereign grace. If you just think about all the biblical characters and all of their unique stories, you'll notice that there is a common thread running through all of their stories. In all of them, all of the biblical heroes that we love, there is always an experience of profound failure and disappointment. We've already mentioned Abraham and his 25 years of infertility. And then, the next character we're introduced to is Jacob and how he was exiled from his home for years. And then there's Joseph, and we know how he was sold into captivity for years. And later on, we read other books about other characters like David and how he experienced profound failure when he lost his throne at the betrayal of one of his own sons. And here in Exodus, Moses, as we see, is just making things worse. Here in Exodus 5, he is just failing. This is the pattern that we see in Scripture. Before someone is ready to be used by God to be part of his plans— we see God sending them a teacher called failure. I was actually watching the latest Star Wars yesterday, looking, just watching certain scenes, and I was reminded by the wise words of the great Master Yoda. The greatest teacher failure is. And failure's most important lesson to us is about Grace. I really think that's what failure is trying to teach us. It's about grace. Our need for God's sovereign grace in our lives. The servant of God must be stripped of any false notion that success and accomplishment are the default whenever you try to do His will. That victory is somehow the norm if you are willing to serve him. I think that is the implicit assumption that we always carry around, especially especially if we have been shielded from the experience of profound failure. And I admit that I look back at my childhood, I look back at my adolescence, I was shielded from failure. I never had much trouble accomplishing my goals. I pretty much got whatever I strive for. I rarely had a door slammed in my face. Now, you could credit that to my parents and to all of the opportunities they afforded me. You could attribute that to my my success, to my work ethic. I, I certainly did. And it wasn't, though, until later on in adulthood when I finally experienced profound failure, when doors were slammed in my face, only then did I come to realize how much I have always been the beneficiary of God's sovereign grace. I realized how much I presume on God's grace, how much I take it for granted all the time, because I realize now that every success, every accomplishment, every win, all of that is a gift of grace. He's always giving me what I don't deserve because what I do deserve, what you deserve, is the wages of our sin. We deserve the consequences of our selfishness, of our negligence of God and His glory. Failure should actually be the default. Difficulty should be the norm. And so it's in those occasional moments in life when God sovereignly holds back His grace, and lets us taste failure, the failure we do deserve, it's in those moments that we are reminded about our powerlessness and our deep need for His grace. And that, my friends, is another reason why, why God works that failure into your life, into His plans for you. He is trying to humble us He is trying to teach us about our limitations. And this this lesson that he's teaching us, I think is especially pronounced when you are trying to change people's minds or to touch their hearts. Because that is exactly what Moses and Aaron were tasked to do. They were tasked to change the mind of Pharaoh and to move his heart to compassion. But this story of failure teaches us that the human heart is hard and it's beyond the power of any other human to actually change it. Moses and Aaron tried to deliver a clear and compelling message and it did nothing. The foremen, they tried to appeal to reason, they made pragmatic arguments, but to no avail. And if we keep on reading in the book, we see Pharaoh confronted with more miraculous signs and more persuasive speech and more threats and more warnings, but none of it will compel him to let God's people go. In the end, the only force powerful enough to change his mind and to move his heart proves to be the hand of God. So think about what that means, what it means for you because i'm sure there are people in your life who are currently stuck in a particular unhealthy pattern of sin and you have a burden on your heart to help them or you know maybe we could even be describing you you want to help yourself but whether you're dealing with certain attitudes or actions in yourself or in another person what you first need what first needs to happen is that you need to be stripped of any false notion that you can effectively break someone free from an unhealthy pattern of sin. Just as we see in our passage, no sign, no speech, no threat or warning can change a hardened heart. No effort on our part is going to break anyone free. God himself is going to have to do the work. He's going to have to break in. The great I am has to roll up his sleeves to bear his mighty arms. He alone has the power to save, to change a sinner's heart, and to rescue us from bondage. And this really goes back to the point I've been making and all the sermons so far in Exodus, I've been saying that, you know, this is not just a book about ancient history, about Israel's bondage and deliverance from e- Egypt. This book here is actually an illustration that describes humanity's spiritual bondage and all of us and our great need for deliverance from the captors of sin and death. That's what this book is about. The the mighty events recorded for us in in Exodus supply us with the categories and the concepts that are necessary for understanding an even greater Exodus to come when God, as it says, raises up another prophet like Moses. You know, there's this place in the book of Acts where The apostle Peter, he's preaching about the risen Christ, and and he makes a connection to what the Old Testament promises about another prophet to come like Moses. This is in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. He references this ancient prophecy of another like Moses, and he argues that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of that, that he is the one to come to accomplish an even greater exodus for God's people. Because remember, Peter was actually there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. He saw Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. He heard them discussing Jesus' departure. Literally, in the Greek, it says that they were discussing his exodus. At the time, obviously, he didn't get it, but after witnessing the death and resurrection of his Lord, Peter understood that the exodus that God accomplished through Moses was only pointing to a greater exodus that he would accomplish through his son, that through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, God would deliver his people from an even greater enemy in in a deeper bondage. And friends, if you just put your faith in Jesus, believing that he died for your sins and that he rose again to give you new life, then your life can truly change. You can experience true freedom. That, my friends, is the grace of God in the gospel. And the point I've been trying to make is that God allows you to experience failure in his plans for you in order to humble you and drive you to him and to that very grace found in the gospel. That's how he wants you to respond when you experience failure. But unfortunately, that's not how everyone does respond. Because if we look back at our story, and we'll conclude with this, we see the foreman leaving Pharaoh's palace in failure and frustration because they couldn't change his mind and it says in verse 20 that they ran into Moses and Aaron and they were livid. And They said to the brothers the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so instead of letting the experience of failure, drive them to God, it drove them to confront Moses and Aaron to call a curse down upon them and to blame them for for Pharaoh's response. I really think that's the natural reaction for us. When we experience failure, we go looking for someone to blame. But instead of turning to Pharaoh for help or instead of turning against Moses and Aaron, what they could have done is they could have turned to God. They could have cried out to the Lord, like they did earlier at the end of chapter two. Failure is meant to strip us of any false notion in ourselves and turn our eyes to see what the Lord will do that we cannot do for ourselves. Just look with me at the next verse in chapter six, verse one. Just look at how the next chapter begins. The Lord is basically saying, okay, Now that you've been educated by failure, now that you are starting to turn away from yourselves, now watch. Now, look what he says in the very first verse, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Let me ask you, what kind of failure are you facing right now? What kind of disappointment are you dealing with? Are you frustrated with the lack or the pace of change in yourself or in another person? Where are you turning? Are you turning to others to cry out to them? Are you turning to others to blame them? Turn away from others. Turn away from yourself. Turn to the Lord and see what he will do. He's going to amaze you. He's going to surprise you. Turn to the Lord. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for how it is speaking to us, even in the midst of difficulty, disappointment, and failure. How, no matter what range of emotions we bring to you this morning, your word speaks a relevant word to us. Now, by your Spirit, may we respond to you with faith and love and hope we pray this in jesus name amen Amen. let's rise as we uh, respond